Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to uh, John chapter 5. John chapter 5. You'll find the notes this morning's message in the bulletin. Um, you'll find the text if you don't have a Bible on the back of the notes. And this morning we'll continue in our study of John chapter 5, one large unit, the single largest unit of Jesus' uninterrupted speech to his opponents and the second largest chunk of uninterrupted speech in the gospel itself. And I'd like to begin by reading, uh, not all of chapter 5, but um, we'll take it from verse 16 through 30. Verses 16 through 30. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Forever the Father does, the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Lord God, I pray as we study um, this amazing uh, passage, our Lord Jesus makes monumental claims of deity, explaining his relationship to you, unpacking his identity, his authority, that you would give us eyes to see, that we would receive and to hear and to believe, that we might hear his voice, we might pass from death to life, or that the life in us might grow. Lord, I pray that you would establish your word as that which creates reverence for you. Use it to speak life and light into dead hearts. Lord God, in Jesus' name, I ask this. Amen. This is an amazing passage. I was talking freely to, to a number of you in the last week, and last Sunday's passage and this Sunday's passage are, are some of the most challenging, daunting, and intimidating messages I've had to give in a long time. Um, so, once we, once we get into 31, I'll be in more familiar territory, but as our Lord Jesus explains basically Trinitarian relationships, how he relates to the Father. I think I said this last week. I know of no passage that for this extended period of time and with this much detail explains, unpacks the relationship of the Son to the Father. I'll remind you what Jesus has done is he has orchestrated a moment of conflict. He has orchestrated an event. He has chosen one man out of many for the sole purpose of, of creating this conflict and the Jews get on this man because he's carrying them, his mat, as Jesus told him to, and, and they get upset that he's breaking the Sabbath. He points them to Jesus, ultimately. There's, a, there's an in-between steps. And that then gets them persecuting Jesus. I'll remind you that in John's gospel up to this point, there's been no persecution of Jesus. There's been some, some 
controversy when he cleansed the temple. And they said, well, what sign do you give us? And they scoff and they hoo and ha a little bit at his response, but no mention of adversaries, no mention of, of persecution. And so Jesus goes from, from relatively zero to persecution to them trying to kill him by saying one thing. My father works on the Sabbath, so I work on the Sabbath. Astounding. And they get it. They understand he's claiming equality with God. This is the charge they're going to make to crucify him, the charge of blasphemy. And so the entire rest of this chapter is serving two purposes. 19 through 30 is him explaining, clarifying what he means when he says he is the son of the father. 19 through 30 is the Trinitarian relationship of the father and son explained. And then starting in 31 through the rest of the chapter is Jesus marshalling defense. Jesus giving basis, a foundation, warrant for these astounding claims. Our Lord does not expect the Jews in Jerusalem to simply take his word for it, but he points to multiple lines of verification. John the Baptist, the miracles he's doing, the father audibly speaking at his baptism, and the Old Testament scriptures all testifying to who he is. And so our Lord makes this point, I suggested, at the end of last week, because this issue, believing Jesus is not just a good man, not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, but rather very God of very God, believing he is one with the Father, he, he is from the Father, is crucial, an essential piece in what we must believe to be saved. We left it in verse 24. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and doesn't, doesn't say believes Jesus, hears my words and believes him who sent me. In other words, Jesus has so established himself as in lockstep with the Father's purpose, so established that his activity is nothing but a reflection of what he sees in his Father, that his words and how you respond to his words is believing or not believing the Father who sent him. And he says, look, you, you must believe this testimony I'm giving about me, myself. This is why he's created this conflict. This is why he has, has orchestrated this moment that, that he might communicate this crucial truth. He'll, he'll make the same point in John 8 where he tells the Jews, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Well, that's the point he's making here. So, so believing in, to use our vernacular, the deity of Christ and understanding what he means. Are we polytheists? Do we believe in many gods? How are we to take Jesus' claim to deity? And, and how are we to understand that? And Jesus is making it clear that, that believing and wrapping our heads at least somewhat around this is crucial for life. So as we conclude this portion of his, of his speech, I, I would say there's really one main point here. There's, there's, there's a lot of parallelism here. A lot of things occur twice. There's two an hour is comings. There's two hearings of the son's voice. There's two resurrections. But if you want to make one simple point, it would be this, that you and I would hear the son who raises and judges the dead, that we would hear the son who rages and judges the dead. Now, one of the things we'll see in this passage is in one sense, and in one way, everyone on earth who has ever lived will hear the voice of the son of God. Just not everyone's gonna be happy about it. But everyone will hear, just as every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. And so let's, let's look at this in three points. First, the son gives life to the spiritually dead. The son gives life the spiritually dead. We get this solemn introductory formula, truly, truly, I say to you. Now, I want to show you how I see this passage lining up. He says here, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, which I think somewhat parallels, do not marvel, an hour is coming. So two times in this paragraph, Jesus speaks of an hour that is coming. I, I want to lay out front, I think he's talking about two different things. And I think the, the fact that the first hour is coming has the and is now here means we're talking about something. The when, here's your blank, the when is an activity that has begun already and will continue. The hour is coming and is here. T turn back to chapter four. He used the same parallel construction with the woman at the well. 
In verse 21 of chapter four, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. But in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If you think through that, that makes sense. It's not until the resurrection, it's not until the temple is destroyed, it's not until events yet future when Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well that locations of worship won't matter. It's precisely because locations of worship matter still that Jesus goes up to Jerusalem obediently. He's, he's not free to disregard the Mosaic law yet. The law has not been abrogated yet. So he says it's soon, it's soon to the woman at the well, an hour is coming, but he doesn't say it's here now, when location will not matter. Now for us, we're at that point. We've, we look back in the rearview mirror, and so we don't have a geographic center for the church. Where must we go to worship God? Well, wherever we gather. But he says to the woman, an hour is coming. But what is present in verse 23 for the woman, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. This woman and the Samaritans at Sychar can even now begin worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. So he uses the expression twice here, just as he does here in five. And I'm arguing he's talking about two different things. The hour that's coming and now here is different from the hour that is coming. The reason why I highlight that is there's enough parallelism between the two statements that you might think they're the same thing. Because in both hours, the voice of the son is heard. So we, we read, an hour is coming in verse 25 of chapter five, when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. And if you jump down to verse 28, the hour is coming when all in the tombs will hear the voice. And you might think, well, the dead and those in the tombs, the hour is coming when people are going to hear his voice. And so it look, you might, I'd forgive you if, you if you thought this was talking about the same thing. But I think that the qualifier, the hour is coming and now is here, over against the hour is coming. And what this means, means we're talking about two different hearings. There's a hearing of the voice of the Son of God that can happen now now and his now, and he's talking to the Jews. And there's a hearing of the voice of the Son of God that is yet future from John 5, and I believe yet future for us as well. So even though in both hours, we're talking about hearing the voice of the Son of God, or the Son, actually the title shifts, um, I think we're talking about two different whens. So here for the first, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, when, I believe in activity we're talking about here that has begun and will continue. In other words, I think Jesus here is clarifying his previous statement. I think Jesus is giving clarity to verse 24. At the end of verse 24, Jesus says, we saw this, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. Has, not will have, now. There's a presentness. Now they have eternal life. They will not come into judgment, future, but have, past tense now, passed from death to life. The one who hears Jesus' voice, his word, notice the parallelism of the word, whoever hears my word has something, will escape something in the future, and has passed from something to something. But, but there are things that have already happened to them. There's an hour coming and now here, in other words. I think Jesus is explaining further what he just said in verse 25. And I think what he begins to say in 27 and 28 is about a yet future activity. So what, what is he talking about then? The what. So we go from the when, point A. This tells us when we're talking about something. What are we talking about? When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. So if this is not future, if this is something already happening, then the life we're talking about is not physical resurrection life, but rather spiritual resurrection, what we might call regeneration. That's your blank, regeneration. This is what he says in 24. Those who hear his word and believe him who sent him have life. They have passed from death into life. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, this having of life, this possessing of life to those who hear the word of the Son has already begun and it will continue. I would, I would argue it began with Jesus' ministry and it continues even out of this very morning right now and here. We're hearing his words, are we not? Which means there's a tremendous promise, a tremendous invitation, if you will, 
to hear the son's words even now, even as I repeat them and they come out of my mouth, it's his words. And Jesus is promising and saying, those who hear and believe have life, will not come into judgment, but have passed from death into life. Truly, truly, he says, believe this. So when I say, hear the son, that's what I'm referring to. Hear his word, believe. Point two here, those who hear the son of God and have eternal life. Here he's talking and uses the title son of God. In 27, he'll switch to son of man. Hear, hear, the, hear the voice of the son of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. In one sense, the discussions that Jesus has had and, and continues to have in the gospel center around one thing. What, what was he talking about Nicodemus? You must be born again. A new principle of life must enter you. Now there, it's being looked at from the vantage point of the spirit birthing, begetting. But, but we're talking about regeneration. And later in John 3, Jesus explicitly mentions eternal life. So there's no confusion what we are talking about. He is talking about, here we go, in John 3, um, 17, no, 14 and 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about eternal life. Now there, that life is in the context and the framework of the Holy Spirit. And what was emphasized was our passivity, our inability to make the Holy Spirit do anything. You can't reach out and grab eternal life, wrest it from the Spirit. The Spirit blows where the Spirit wishes. That's the emphasis in chapter three. But in chapter four, what's he talking about with the woman at the well? There he's talking about living water. But what does the living water do? It becomes in you. It springs up, becoming a well to, oh, there it is again, eternal life. He's talking with the woman. Now there, the vantage point is, if you sort of build upon John three, you, you can't reach out and grab it. You can't take it. You can't force it. But you can ask if you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, give me a drink, you'd ask of him and he'd give you living water. So he's talking with the one with the well about regenerations, having spiritual life now. What's he talking about here with the Jews in Jerusalem? Same thing. In one sense, there's been a constant theme through three, four, and five. The promise, the gift of eternal life that can be had now. That's not simply a then promise then you will escape judgment, Jesus says, but you can have life now. And here, it all turns upon hearing the word of the Son of God and believing him who sent him. Receiving Jesus as God's own son, hearing his word, believing him and his claims to deity, hearing and believing. To which Jesus then explains how. How can this be? I understand Jesus is making another even greater claim. He's saying his words, his voice, give life to the spiritually dead. We, we sang this morning, I cannot make my soul live. Jesus says, my word can. I mean, that is an astounding claim. What spell, what rite, what ritual must we perform to have spiritual life? Jesus says, hear my word and believe him who sent me of life. And so he, makes the, he explains how this can be possible. How can his word be so powerful? How can his word be so uniquely life-giving? For, point C is your blanks, how? For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. Jesus is saying, here's the basis. Here's how I can have such a life-giving word. And we get to one of the deepest mysteries in this whole gospel, I've been banging my head against this phrase in this verse for years. It's just absolutely amazing. So the, the analogy here is as God has life in himself, whatever that means, okay, now the Father has given the Son to have the same thing. So we've got to start in the analogy by considering what does it mean that the Father has life in himself? This is kind of a unique phrase in Scripture. Um, 
D.A. Carson suggests it's almost like a technical term. You want, he'd hyphenate it. The father has life in himself. It, it seems unique to John as best as we can tell, but surely the concept of God being the living God is not anything new. You think all the way back to Exodus chapter um, 2, and when Moses says, what is your name? God's name is a kind of impossible conjugation of the verb I am. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Um, we, we saw back in the beginning of, of John 1, in Christ was life. In the beginning, the word was ising or being. What, what separates God from all other idols and would-be gods? Listen to Numbers 14.21. As I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Deuteronomy 32 39 to 40, see now that I, even I, I am he, there is no other God besides me. I kill, I make alive, I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand, for I lift up my hand to heaven and swear as I live forever. So, so God living and being the living God and all the idols not being living, they have they have faces, they have eyes but don't see, they have ears but don't hear, they have tongues but don't speak. They're carved pieces of stone. They're not like God who's alive and living. Um, this is getting to something central and core to who God is. And theologians and philosophers, we come up with terms, try to wrap around this, and we talk, here's a blank, the Father is self-existent, which is just another way, I think, of saying he has life in himself. The Father doesn't get his life from another source. You and I got our lives from our parents. There was a time when we were not. And then our life came from another life. Right? Not so with the Father. He has life in himself. As the Puritans would say, he is of himself. He is aser, the aseity of God. He, he, he does not depend on anything outside of himself. That's why he never grows weary or gets hungry. He doesn't need things external to himself. And so we wrap that up with the bow and we call it self-existent. The Father's self-existent. He is living. The, the Bible's emphasis is he is the living God. As I live, declares God. Turn, turn over to John 6. Jesus will affix a title in a slightly different way there. In John 6, 57. I think making a statement that helps explain this a little. In John 6, 57, Jesus says, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. So turn back to, turn back to 27 in chapter 5. 26, I mean. For as the Father is life in himself, so he is granted, gifted, given. These are parallel statements. He's given something to the Son in 26, and in 27 he's given him something else. And so here, what is it the Father's given the Son? Whatever is meant by life in himself, he's given that to the Son. And that's the, that's the crazy part. <laughs> what? Now, this is absolutely true, and I think easy to wrap our heads around as we consider the incarnation. The Father, um, the Holy Spirit, sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit um, came upon Mary, the Virgin Mary, and she begat, she became, she conceived the Son of God. So that life in himself, Jesus' Jesus' humanity, his human life, had a beginning, right? And so in that sense, we can speak of the Father giving life in himself to the Son. It's hard to know exactly how far Jesus is speaking and pressing this, because the the, the incarnated Son of God, the God-man, is the one speaking to these Jews in Jerusalem. The one speaking to them has taken on flesh, um, if, if you think, and it's entirely possible, Jesus is speaking of an absolute sense, then you've got to be really careful, and you've got to speak about an eternal begetting. Uh, I'll read to you briefly. Um, the, the earliest Christian heresies, the earliest struggles the church had, were precisely hinged upon trying to wrap our minds around these types of truths and saying it just right and not saying. The dangers are speaking of Jesus in such a way that at the end of the day, he stops being God. He's little g God. Or being polytheists. So I'll just read to you briefly um, from the Nicene Creed. 
The council in Nicaea, early church gets together, Christianity is legalized, they come out, and, they, and then just a key phrase here from 325 AD. I, I'd recommend looking up and reading the Nicene Creed. It's, it's not authoritative, it's not scripture, but the fact that all of the church got together and agreed on this, and nearly 2,000 years later, virtually all of God's people say that's a, that's a good way of saying it. That's an orthodox sound way of saying it. That, that should matter. That should be significant. Check it out. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, before born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. If you press me on what the difference between those two is, I'm not entirely sure. But I get the point they're trying to say. He's not made. He's not a creature. He's begotten. Consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. And then later, about 175 years later, the Athanasian Creed, putting an even sharper point on it. As Christian truth compels us to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so Catholic religion forbids us, as lowercase, Catholic just means universal. Um, Catholic religion forbids us to say that there are three gods or lords. The Father was neither made nor created nor begotten. The Son was neither made nor created, but was alone begotten of the Father. A little later, he is God before all worlds from the being of the Father. He is man born into the world from the being of his mother, existing fully as God and fully as man. It's precisely on trying to wrap their heads around the truth Jesus is stating here, that the early church had to spend a lot of time um, and a lot of prayer and a lot of work to get things right on this. These are challenging topics. And yet Jesus creates this moment that he can speak and he'd have us hear and understand. So Jesus, whatever life in himself is, Jesus says the Father is given to him. And that's absolutely true as far as the incarnation goes. And if, 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 if Jesus is speaking even broader than that, and he may well be doing that, then you've got to say things really carefully like the Nicene Creed does or the Athanasian Creed does because um, you don't want to say something that ends up making Jesus a creature, a part of the created order. Um, anyway, we've got to move on. Because Jesus says this to explain how his word can have such force. You're blank here. The Father has given this to the Son. The Father has given this to the Son. So the first point Jesus makes, truly, truly, an hour is coming and is now here, where those who hear his word, hear his voice and his word, will have life, eternal life. Later in chapter 10, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Ultimately, how do people become Christians? How do they come to faith? They hear in the words of scripture, they hear in the gospel message, the voice of the Lord Jesus. They hear the voice of their shepherd and they, they believe and they have life. These are all ways of speaking. The, the same is true that they've been born of the spirit. It's also true these are the people who ask for the living water, putting it all together. Which then brings us to the second point. Now what's challenging here is grammatically, the next sentence looks like a continuation of what he just said. Here's another thing the Father's given him. But I think it'll become clear that verse 27 is actually setting up the next huge claim Jesus makes in 28. So the first claim, the Son of Man, the Son of God, I'm sorry, gives life to the spiritually dead. The Son of God's voice gives life to spiritually dead people. And he is able to do that because he also, just as the Father has life in himself, the Son has life in himself. And so he is able, as a fountain of life, to give life and to revive and resurrect people as he chooses. The next claim is even greater. This is the pinnacle of Jesus' claims here. And, and in verses 27 and 29, the Son of Man will raise and judge the dead. The Son of Man will raise and judge the dead. Let's read verses 27 to 29. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. 
those who've done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. (laughs) Astounding. So, again, we've got the first phrase here um, is, is, is relating to how. Just as the other four, the gift of the Father to the Son explains how it's possible, Jesus starts here with the how. How can what he is about to say be understood? And it's because of another gift from the Father. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment. Now, he's already mentioned this earlier in chapter 5. The Father judges no one, he says in verse 22, but has given all judgment to the Son. So he's returning to a topic he's already mentioned. All judgment is given to the Son. And so he returns here. He's given him authority to execute judgment. Well, why? Why would the Father do that? I mean, one of the things we'll see at the end of this morning's message is God repeatedly claims he and he alone will judge the earth. He is the righteous judge. He is the one who will judge the peoples in equity and righteousness. Why would the Father give this judgment to the Son? Um, Well, the why here is because he is the Son of Man. And here, Jesus gives them an Old Testament title. Uh, One of the things I've had discussions with some of you about is almost a sympathy for the Jews of how striking how challenging, how just perspectively changing Jesus' claims are. And, and I've been asked by a couple of you, was there anything in the Old Testament to set this up? Is there any inclination or any inkling that any of this could be happening? Here Jesus hits upon that. T- turn to Daniel 7. Turn to Daniel chapter 7. Here Jesus identifies himself with a figure in the Old Testament to whom... Such claims might be a bit more understandable. In Daniel 7, there is a person of note, remarkable person. And Daniel 7 is kind of enigmatic, even Daniel's description. He's like a son of man, which is to say he, he looks kind of human. Daniel's not willing to go on record one way or the other if he's human or not, but he, he, he was like a human. Verse 13. I saw in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days. So this one is distinct from God. He comes to the ancient of days. And yet what happens is, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here is an antecedent Old Testament person. Now, granted, there's a lot of question marks over this in Daniel. I'm sure the Jews are scratching their head. Who is this person? But whoever this person is in Daniel 7, might it make more sense for this person to claim that his voice gives life for this person to claim equality with God. After all, he comes and stands before God and God gives him things and authority and judgment. Here's a person who the claims Jesus is making might well fit to a Jew struggling with what Jesus is saying. And so now it becomes more of a question of, okay, is Jesus then Daniel 7? Is he the son of man? Well, Jesus is saying the reason the father has given him judgment is because he is the son of man. And God has already gone on record saying what he does to the son of man, he gives him dominion, glory, kingdoms, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here Jesus says, that's that's who I am. Notice the title shift from son of God now to son of man. Not meaning mortal, meaning a very remarkable person. A very remarkable person. You're blank. Jesus is the divine son of man spoken of in Daniel. So he's setting up his next statement. Probably the greatest, loftiest statement yet. And he he anchors himself to the identity as this person in Daniel 7. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. He's recognizing this is a big claim. 
as I've said, that the rest of this chapter is Jesus defending it. And in some sense, validating, yeah, you ought to expect an awful lot of evidence before you accept someone making a claim this big. The fact that Jesus will bring in four testimonies validates the, the expectation that you don't just, anyone who waltzes in and says they're the son of man from Daniel 7, <laughs> okay, let's see some proof. And so he starts by de- declaring his ability is right to, to execute judgment. Next point B, when? An hour is coming when? Now we're looking pure future. This hasn't happened in Jesus' time when he's speaking to the Jews and it hasn't happened yet. Now we get to the what. When all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That's why I said everyone will hear the voice of the Son, and everyone will respond. Some, it won't be the first time, some will have already heard his voice and passed from death to life. For those who do not hear the Son's voice until this late hour, it will not be a good thing for them. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is claiming his word, his voice is so powerful, so life-giving, so authoritative that by his voice alone, he will speak and every person who has ever died in the history of this planet will respond and come to life that the righteous and the unrighteous alike will all be resurrected, will all be raised. And they'll be raised by the power of Jesus' voice. That is a jaw-droppingly astounding claim. And again, this is the Jesus to whom you have to trust, receive, and believe, or reject. But let us have no silly talk about a good teacher. Good teachers don't claim these types of claims. Every person, every person who's ever lived, your, your loved ones, Hitler, Adam and Eve, everyone who has ever lived will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth, will come out. <sighs> Astounding claim. Jesus will raise, and not just raise, but raise and judge the dead. It begins with his claim to judgment. The Father has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. So let's look at these two resurrections. Those who've done good to the resurrection of life. Um, A word needs to be said. He doesn't say those who believed and those who didn't believe. He casts it in those who did good or good things, and those who did evil. So is this a resurrection of works? It's a fair question. I think we already have categories to understand this. Turn back to John chapter 3. And one of the points I've been trying to uh, make repeatedly in our study of John's gospel is faith is not some passive, inactive thing. Faith causes things to happen. My working definition of faith would be trust or confidence such that you're willing to act. If you're not willing to act upon what you claim you believe, I would challenge that you don't believe it. And we see the connection between faith and action here in John 3, 19. The summary of his encounter with Nicodemus. John 3, 19 This is the judgment. Light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Why, why do people not like Jesus, he says? Because their works are evil. So how do you identify the people who don't like Jesus? According to verse 19. The people whose works are evil, who love evil works. For everyone that does wicked things hates the light does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. A commitment, a love of evil deeds. 
is what keeps you from coming to Jesus. So given that reality, Jesus can say the, the, the ones who did evil, resurrection of judgment. The ones who did, what about the ones who did good? Look at the next verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it is maybe clearly seen that all his works have been carried out by God. Those who are justified, those who are believing, those who come to Jesus have a different set of works. They're not saved by those works, but those works mark them. How can you tell the people who have faith in Jesus? How can you tell the people who've received his word and believed him who sent him? How can you tell those people who've asked and received living water? How can you identify those people who the spirit has birthed? They have a different set of works. They have a different way of living. They have a different fruit on their tree. And that logic is what's informing, I think, our Lord here. Look at the last um, verse of chapter 3. 336, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The only way to explain that dichotomy is to assume the logic that what you believe you do, such that you can swap out believe and obey. Anyway, back to five. I don't believe our Lord here is saying, after all he said about believing, 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 that at the end of the day, the final resurrection is just going to come down to the works you bore. He's been too emphatic, even just in our own passage. The condition is believe, believe. Believe the one who sent him. And yet the assumption, the logic of John's gospel is those who believe are going to have a different set of works, a different lifestyle. Not perfection, but you're going to be able to tell them apart. And so he says, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, point one, their deeds prove they loved and came to the light. I'm just using the language of John 3, 19 to 21. Their works, the people who come to the light, why do they come to the might be seen their works have been wrought in God. Their works prove they're the ones who came to the light. The, their works prove they're the ones who love, didn't hate, and came to Jesus' light. This is the first resurrection. I'm not sure if we'll have time to go to Revelation 20, but if you check out Dave Lample's class, I'm sure he can pick up what I'm having time for here. No, but there are two resurrections. These two resurrections Jesus speaks about don't happen simultaneously. Revelation makes clear. Which brings us to the second. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, their deeds proved they hated the light. Just using the categories of John 3. This is the second resurrection and the second death. In fact, I think we have time. Go to, go to Revelation 20, where this gets, becomes explicit. Um, Revelation chapter 20. Starting in... Uh, Verse four, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. So notice there's two resurrections. There's a resurrection prior to the millennial kingdom. And there's a resurrection at the end. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they'll be priests to God and of Christ, and they'll reign with him for a thousand years. But a little later, down in verse 11, we read about that second death. In other words, there are some those who believed or heard, heard the Lord's word, those who have life now, who when they hear his voice then will rise to newness of life. They'll rise to reign with him. They'll rise to enter a kingdom. This can be you or me if we live or if we die before the Lord returns. The fate of the others is more tragic. They are raised for the second death. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, 
great and small, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You will, one way or another, hear the voice of the Son of God, and you will come forth with a response of life. Oh, hear his voice now. Or you will hear his voice then and be made alive to be thrown in a lake of fire. That's, we don't, we don't do ourselves any favors by filing down the sharp edges. Um, the, the stakes couldn't be greater. Jesus is the one saying that it is he and the power of his word that will accomplish this. And yet amazingly, your fate, whether you are going to share in the first resurrection or the second, everything hinges upon verse 24. Truly, truly I say to you, back in John 5, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. You can have eternal life now, today, this morning. And you will not, he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. You, you will hear his voice. Hear it now. Hear it today. Hear it this morning. Have life. Why would you perish? Um, quickly, verse 30. Verse 30. <sighs> to Jews who are steeped in the Old Testament, his claim must be shocking. It's God who's going to judge the living and the dead. It's God who will judge the nations in righteousness. I'll, I'll read to you a, a smattering of some of the passages. Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. Psalm 82, 8, arise, O God, judge the earth. Psalm 96, 10, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that is fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness, or Psalm 98, seven through nine, let the seas roar and all that fills it, the world and all those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people with equity. I thought, I thought that was the judge. Jesus makes it clear there's no alteration because his judgment is perfectly in keeping with his father's judgment. In one sense, it would make no difference. The judgments would not differ if the father or the son were doing the judging because Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own, which ties all the way back to 19, making this a chunk. It begins and ends with the same sentence, same sentiment. As I hear, I judge. So Jesus' judgment will be in perfect righteousness, but his judgment is, first we hear a note of dependence, even the glorified Lord, when, when you read these statements about Jesus' inability to act on his own, but only to do as he sees his father doing here, he's putting that into the future when we know he's exalted, when we know he's glorified, when we know he's been given a name above every name. Even then, I can do nothing on my own. We, we live in a day and an age where self-expression, being original, or as Frank Sinatra said, doing it my way, being authentic, those are values. Don't imitate other people. Don't follow along. Be yourself. The son says he can't do anything on his own. He can't. As he hears, his entire judgment is an imitation of his father. And he delights in that. That's his glory. It's his boast. 
I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge. And his judgment, point B, is righteousness. And my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus' judgment is according to the Father's plan. The Father has given him judgment. And the Son's purpose in judging is not to show people, here's how I judge. My Father judges one way, but I... No, his judgment is that of a perfect son imitating his father. His father's shown him how to judge, and Jesus responds in love by imitating his father. No, have no fear. The judgment of the living and the dead that will occur at the end of time will be imperfect righteousness. It will be perfectly an imitation of his father. The, the promises of the Old Testament that God will come and judge the earth in righteousness will be kept perfectly. Just we now learn it's the son who will be doing the judgment. So as I close, and we will not be singing our closing song this morning, I'm sorry, but as I close, I would just urge you to consider the weight that Jesus has placed upon hearing his word. I'll I'll, I'll repeat the salient points. One of these two things at least will be true of you, hopefully two of them. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. That hour and that hearing is for some, not all. You're invited, ask. He'll give you the living water. That hearing is an invitation to all, but it's not gonna be true of all. But then we get down to verse 28, do not marvel, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So you can't escape responding to Christ's voice and his word. You, you can't, you will. Hear and respond and receive and believe now and have life. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we pray, I pray, I, I beseech you, Lord, that you by your spirit would birth life in dead hearts, that you would that you would unstop deaf ears, that your sheep, your children might hear your voice, your word, the man of life. You are a fountain of life. You're an endless source of life. Give it, pour it out here, I pray, Lord God. And for those of us who have received that life, that might we exult and rejoice in it, knowing that Not just one day we'll go to heaven. One day we will escape judgment, and we will. But that right now we are possessing life from the Son. That right now we have passed from death into life. Let let that matter more to us than the hopes and the aspirations of this life. Let that be our sure and steadfast anchor. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.